Alright, so this is a different type of episode of our Saturday English. So usually what I do here is I take a term or a phrase that helps to reinforce racism and I try to unpack it a little bit. Alright, we talked about native speaker. How's that bad? We talked about accent. How's that bad? We talked about um, expat versus immigrant. We talked about fluency. You, if you've been listening, you understand what we do here. But what I'm trying to do this time a little bit is more of the ELT advocacy. Not just advocating for the students, which I think is necessary, but frankly advocating for the teachers because I realize that in the work that I'm doing, um, a fair amount of it is going to be ELT advocacy. The research I'm doing on race and language teaching is really going to touch on how racialized teachers like myself um, don't have as much of a home in the industry as they need to have an industry that is centered on whiteness in ways that it would rather not admit. So in this episode, I talked to Alice Kim about her experiences uh, being a racialized English language teaching professional. Uh, She had some similar experiences to me where she was teaching overseas, although in a different context for me, but that was a place where people hadn't met people who looked like her before. And then she came home for her to Canada and has had experiences where she looked a little bit more like her students than I ever had. And so that's different than what I wanted to hear about. So um, we talk about that. We talk about um, how it's been, what her experiences have been like in both contexts. And we talk also about what the industry really needs to do to improve because ultimately All this talk is great, but if the policies and the practices and the patterns of the industry do not change, then it's all for naught. Right? And things need to change. Hope you enjoy. All right, so uh, we are back on Unstandardized English. I am JPB Gerald, as ever. Today I am here with Alice Kim. Alice is a veteran of the ELT field, like most of the people I speak to. And she's had some experiences that are similar to mine teaching in other countries and also teaching at home. But her experience has been different because whereas I, as a racialized ELT professional, have taught barely any people the same racialization as me, that is not the case for her. So, Alice, thanks for coming on tonight. Thanks for having me. Um, so, before we get into the questions that I was going to focus on, why don't you tell me a little bit, you know, generally speaking, about your background in the field and some of the work that you have done. All right. Um, so, my teaching journey started in uh, Cairo, which is a little bit different from the, uh, most people's trips to Asia. Um I went there to teach at a school for children with special needs initially, and uh, that didn't really work out. But through contacts, I had found out about uh, an MA TEFL program at the American University in Cairo. And so um, I applied and got in, and I did the program. Um, That was my first taste of EAP at that school. didn't make any money whatsoever. I was a poor student. So after that, I decided to go to the Gulf to to make some money, essentially. Um, and I was familiar with the region by that point. Um, so the first country I went to was uh, Doha, 
Qatar, or Qatar in the city of Doha. Um, I taught there for two years um, at one of the national, national universities. And then I moved on to Kuwait, um, and I worked in Kuwait City at uh, the American University of Kuwait. Um, so I was in the Middle East for about seven years in total. And then in 2013, um, I decided to come, come home. Uh, it took about a year before I was able to find work at the place I'm at now, uh, where I teach EAP to international students at one of the um, uh, universities in the city. Uh, my students here are predominantly mainland Chinese, very wealthy mainland Chinese, predominantly. Um, and so the experiences, I would say, uh, are a little bit different from my time in the Gulf, but similar in other ways because uh, I would say my students in the Gulf were fairly well-off students, privileged in that sense, and my students in um, my current place of employment would be in the same position as well. So yeah. to, there's many things that you said that I'd like to follow up on. Um, so, when you started, how, what, what kind of job ad did you, you know, find or apply to when you started in Cairo? Yeah, okay. There's a long story behind that. Um, so, I, I, it was a job ad that I saw in the classifieds of a newspaper. Like a physical newspaper? Like a physical newspaper. This was like, I would say, uh, 2005. 2005. So back when they um, still had newspapers, basically. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I responded to the ad, and they needed someone to be kind of a residential assistant to the students there, um, who had all sorts of special needs. And I had just completed uh, a master's in social work. And so it was kind of sort of a way to combine that with my desire to go overseas and, and experience that. So I just kind of, on a whim, I applied and um, was hired, and I ended up, that's, I didn't stay at that school, but while I was there, I met a few key people who uh, led me to the program at the university where I started, essentially started my ELT career. So that's what happened. All right. Um, he's scratching the floor. He does, he does this. Uh, this. But there's nothing, like, he's, he's looking for food. There's no food there. Um, I don't get it. It's like there's, there's no food. He, that's exactly what he wants. Um, anyway, so you applied through a, li a literal newspaper in the mid-2000s, and then you went there, and then um, you said it didn't really work out, and then you went to the Gulf. Now, I know in, what I think it was maybe late 2007, early 2008, I was considering the Gulf as, as well. Oh, my, my camera went away. Um, and uh, I know that all I was thinking was, here's where I'm going to go, and I'm just going to make some money. And I ended up not doing it partially because I was like, it seems like it'll be a little too hot for me. But, I mean, it's just like... But also, what really was the experience like the differences in terms of the, the teaching experience in the classroom between Cairo and the Gulf. Because I think a lot of people who haven't experienced them, myself included, uh, kind of conflate these two parts of the world, even though they're not the same. Yeah, um, okay, well, from my experiences teaching in 
from Cairo. My students were definitely privileged students in Egyptian society whose families could afford and want to send them to an American university. Students were very, students there were very like westernized and um, in terms of their clothing, music tastes, movie tastes, their spoken English was very high. Um, what they needed help on was primarily uh, writing and uh, that's essentially it. Their speaking and listening were very, very high. Um, so they needed help with that. Um, they were friendly, open, very strong in terms of uh, knowing who they are and their identity. Egyptian, the sense of Egyptian nationalism is very high. Um, it's very American of them, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess you could say that. I mean, I, I, my Egyptian students were overall great. Um, I mean, you know, they, were, they remind me of many other students I taught here outside of the EUP. Um, but, so it felt almost like I was teaching at a North American setting. Uh, the Gulf was a little bit different. Um, Qatar, for instance, is a lot more conservative. So the university that I was, that I was working at, um, the campus is gender segregated and the classes are gender segregated. So um, I taught predominantly all female classes. On occasion, I would teach a male, all male class. Um, students, uh, their exposure or their, I don't know, a consumption of Western culture wasn't as high in my experience. Um, their speaking skills weren't as high either. Um, so they, they were more conservative. I mean, um, in a given classroom, I like in an all-female classroom, about 50% of them um, wore, you know, tr their traditional uh, dress. Um, and of that, there was a certain percentage who's, who would wear something called a niqab, where I could not see their faces. Um, that was something that was fine for me. I mean, you, it's amazing what you can get used to, and I was able to get used to that, quote-unquote, um, and get to know my students. And over time, they showed a curiosity towards me. And I, interestingly enough, when I got to know a few of them, like some of them felt, uh, you know, wanted to talk to me about things like, uh, you know, where, how I'm Canadian, but I don't look Canadian. Um, <laughs> they want to talk to me. I mean, what does that mean? Like, yeah. yeah, exactly. Like, are you really Canadian, really, Miss? Um, also, I mean, a lot of them were very. They were, they were into K-pop and things like that. So they they connected with me on that level, which surprised me because I really wasn't expecting that that they would know certain singers and actors or actresses. So it was kind of interesting for us to find. Connection in that way. What year, you you came back to Canada in 2013? So when what years were you in the Gulf? Um, I was in the Gulf from so I was in Qatar from 2008 to 2010, and then I actually came back to Canada for a year, and I tried to um, find meaningful and substantial, and it was hard to do that. And so after a year, um, I, it, weirdly enough, it was easier for me to find work overseas by that point than it was to find work in my own city. And so... Um, Meaningful and sustaining to, work. Exactly, exactly. So, you just find a job, you know, I mean. Exactly. 
And so I, I went back. Um, I applied to many places in that year, in the intervening year between Qatar and Kuwait, including uh, universities in Korea. So by that time, I had a master's in TEFL. So I thought, um, I mean, I applied to certain universities in Korea, in Japan, in uh, Taiwan. Um, and I don't know, I don't think I got any callbacks from the Japanese places or the Taiwanese places. I did get one callback from a Korean university. Um, I don't remember which one, but um, it was interesting because I remember a phone interview. Um, I mean, obviously the 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 director, I suppose, knew that I was Korean, and we he conducted the interview in English. Um, but at some point, you know, he he asked me how how good my Korean was, and <laughs> like in that moment, I wasn't sure if it was going to help me or hurt me. You know, like what my Korean level was going to be. Like my Korean level is, I would say, like uh, I speak to my mom at a basic Korean level. Like I can speak survival Korean. My grammar is probably off, but I could get by. Um, I could, I couldn't like read the news um, and understand what I'm reading. But so I, I did what I could, and he kind of like he was like, hmm. Oh yeah, he's like he actually said I don't know if, what he meant by this, but he was like you know that's not too bad for for someone like you, and I didn't like you know question <laughs> whatever that meant, and but um, I guess it hurt me because he didn't call me back, so I didn't get my job. Well, all you know is it didn't help. Exactly, yeah, you're right. So, um, anyways, it what you know I I had a feeling that getting a job in Korea might be difficult because of who I am, and I've heard stories from other colleagues who have gone to Korea um, and told me similar things, and I know that there are lots of locals in Korea, or second generation Koreans who work and live there. Um, I guess I just wasn't sure if I was ready to face that kind of issue uh, when I went I would work there. So that's another added pressure that I don't know if I was ready to face. The, the the main bookstore that I went to when I lived in Korea was called Gyopo Books. Because um, okay. so, they, they were the one place that sold English books. I mean, they had Korean, okay. Korean books too. but um, So I, di I didn't realize what it meant when I was there. I mean, I just yeah. was like, it's the name of the store, you know, whatever. Um, and that, but that's what it meant. Um, and there were, I, I wish that I had been more social culturally yeah. focused at the time. I mean, I would have done everything differently, but I there were a lot of people I knew there who would have been classified uh, in that category, and I really wish I had the uh, awareness to ask them about what that experience was like, um, especially because most of them that I knew didn't actually speak Korean. So right. now they were hired under the program I was in, the English program in Korea, which is, you know, you only need a college degree for that. Um, so they didn't need to speak any Korean, but I do wonder what it was like because everyone who came up to me spoke to me in English, and they did the same thing that they did with you in the in the Gulf, where I'm like, I'm American, and they're like, really? Yeah. Um, they used to just sh shout countries at me, like, not, not meanly, just guessing. Yeah, they're guessing where I'm from. N not a full sentence of where are you from this country was things like Bangladesh. And I'm like, this not, it's not, don't, well, because the thing is, I'm somewhat fair-skinned for a black person, and that means that people around the world, unless they know I'm black, 
just assume I'm any possible brown thing, which doesn't make any sense to me, but to them, it's just, well, he's brown. I don't, I don't know. Uh, oh, eight to ten. Yeah, I know, right? Like, I've been looking at my, like, Facebook ten years ago, and it's like when I was leaving. Like, around my, like, what have you done this decade? Like, I literally started, I started a decade in Korea and then immediately left in terms of just, it was February. Yeah. Um, so that whole experience of being, you know, different from the students you were having in the Gulf, teaching, having, it's a weird thing to say, Justin, um, the students you were teaching in the Gulf, but them not really quite uh, understanding the category into which they might place you. Um, which is, like I said, a very similar experience to what I had, as you discussed with me beforehand. Was that, I mean, I know it's difficult because I've been through it, but it's also interesting to experience because, generally speaking, it comes from a lack of knowledge rather than, as far as I can tell, and you can agree or disagree, um, personal antipathy. What did you feel about when people uh, were classifying you as not really Canadian or whatever it was? Um, you know, when I got that, I mean, I got that all the time when I was in the Middle East. I mean, not just for my students, but from, like, yeah. taxi cab drivers. Like, you know, it would be the same conversation every time. Like, where are you from? In Canada? And they'd be like, no, no way. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, with my students, uh, okay. you know, I think at one point we talked about nationality and um, thinking about one of my classes in Kuwait where not everyone was Kuwaiti. There were some Syrians, some Palestinians. So there was a bit of a mixed group in there. Um, but so we were talking about nationality for a while. And, you know, one of them was bold enough to ask me, so, Miss, you're Canadian, or you say you're Canadian, but Ooh. you don't really look Canadian. <laughs> you say you're Canadian. And it, how I took that was, like, at least from that class and then students, I just take it as it comes from a place of ignorance or they're just not aware. They're not aware of, or they're not aware um, of what Canada looks like or what states look like, or, I mean, because what they're consuming is based on what they consume in the media, um, which is predominantly, Movies and television. Yeah. Yeah. Or, Blood is a whole thing, but that's still part of what's used when people learn the language. They talk about pure blood, and it's weird. But uh, that was something I heard in Korea also, and I don't want to speak for people, but I heard that, like, oh, well, if I go to a place, then I'm still... Exactly what you're saying, people express that to me. Um, and I do think some of that is a difference, because there are some countries that are more, uh, what say, racially homogenous than others, and so it's not... Um, as common to meet someone from the country who looks different from you. And then there's the whole just them not being aware because you see on television, you see a few things. And when I first got to Korea, oh, Neptune. When I first got to Korea, they all called me, um, you know, they all called me Wegu, right? You know, just, you know, Wegu, right? Yeah, and I, I wasn't, wasn't really offended. They called the white people that too. Um, but that it was 2008, and then in 2009, they called me Obama, 
because they knew what he looked like. Uh, and so it depended on how old they were, generally. So the kids, like, I mean, my students didn't call me that, but I mean, like, the it's talking about strangers or people who just saw me. Um, if they were young, it was usually positive. Obama! Oh, God. Like, there's an Obama! There's an Obama over there. You know, uh, actually, yeah, I've had similar experiences. I would walk down the street and someone would just yell out, like, the only like Asian person they knew and made it. Like, I literally got called Jackie Chan walking down the street, like, <laughs> Jackie Chan, Jackie Chan, and, and yeah, I'm, like, female, first of all. But, uh, I don't know, like, I don't know how you reacted to that. I mean, I think initially my initial reaction was anger, like, when it first started happening to me, and like, how could this, how could you say that? How could how could they be so you know, ignorant and rude or whatever? But I don't know. I Again, I think it, I realized truly it comes from just not knowing. And or maybe, I mean, in a strange way, it's like their only point of reference. And so they're going to like find any way in which to connect with you or something. I don't know. But over time, I just ignored it. And I know that's not, I mean, it doesn't. I mean, I don't know what else I could do or say. I mean, these are literally people on the street. Right. Yeah. You're not going to just turn around. So let me teach you a lesson about races in these places. It's like um, I know that, at, you know, the, the, the Obama thing, because everyone's on the Obama high in 2009. At first I was just like, yeah, that's right. I'm Obama. But uh, then it got annoying. And then I just because I couldn't do anything about it. I said, let me use this to my advantage. So I would go to places, and then people would, they didn't think I was him, but they, they'd never seen an Obama, which is to say a black person. So they started giving me things. And I was like, all right, fine. So it's like, I will, I will accept. I will accept. Like, I, w- I, w- I was on the Great Wall of China on a vacation, and the, the was a vendor selling stuff from the top of the wall. And... The woman goes, oh, Papa, and she wants to take a picture. So I'm like, sure, I will take a picture with you. And she gave me a free beer at 8 in the morning. And I was like, okay. Uh, <laughs> I was like, all right, I'll take it, you know. Um, because what what I, I could choose to get offended, and I know now with distance I'm more mature and so forth. But at age 23, when I was just sort of like, whatever, I'm on this ride, it was just not, I didn't have the energy to, to do all of that fighting all of the time. I will say, though, that, I mean, this is within that context. Right. If I got called Jackie Chan or whatever down the street here, it has a completely different meaning as it would for you, I would imagine. So, oh, certainly I mean, so. Strictly, like, you know, based in that sort of overseas context where, the, for instance, the population is predominantly, like, it's homogenous and... Uh, their access to or their understanding of um, I don't know uh, the, them understanding that doing that might not be pleasantly received you know it's not there not always right Maybe, I think it might be better now right um, yeah yeah I don't know but I it was it sometimes it was that I mean it was usually just like Naming a reference point. That was really what I took it as. Because I, I got called Heinz Ward, which is a football player, because he was black and Korean. Yeah, that's it. That's it. They knew of him. So they'd say, Heinz Ward. And I'm like, okay, I think that that is a positive thing because they like him. 
So so it was, it was just, uh, you know, like, oh, oh, black Korean, like you get, you know, I was like, all right, okay, I see what you're saying. Um, you know, reference point. And, you know, that's not, I, I, you can choose to be offended, but, you know, and then, I, but you're right, if someone, I can't imagine someone doing that here. But, on the other hand, people have said much worse things than that to me here, so I don't know why I would be surprised that such a thing might happen. Uh, so then there's that, and now we contrast it to how things have been, or situations that you've been in professionally and just in life since you came back home, or went back home since I'm not where you are. Uh, so now you teach, you said, predominantly Chinese nationals, and that's been the case since you returned to, or since you got this job? Um, yeah, most of my students are mainland Chinese, and um, that's also been uh, quite interesting for me. Um, I will say that when I first started, I thought, oh, wow, maybe so, you know, there might be, this might feel different in a, in a positive way, teaching these students, and um, that I'm, I might, you know, at least they have a teacher that kind of looks like them, and they, that might be a point of connection for them. And after, it's been about five or six years since I started there and started working there, um, I think it's it's kind of a mixed bag. I, I mean, uh, the students, I think, I started to realize they don't see me as like them. I'm very different, and I think that's connected with the whole, like, Kyoko thing. I am, for all intents and purposes, white to them. Or part of the establishment. So what's interesting about that to me, I mean, there's a lot, but it's like, instead of seeming closer to them, although you, to an outsider, are more, you know, resemble them more closely, you have, in a way, ended up with more distance from them. It's a different kind of connection that I have with my Chinese students than I did with my Middle Eastern students, for sure. And I think um, I think they might have also uh, felt that when they saw me walk into the classroom on the first day, oh, like you know, she's going to get us, or she, you know, this is not going to be so difficult or something. But I think they realize over time, as the weeks go by, that I'm actually just like the other teachers, in terms of my expectations and, um, you know, the things I want them to do and how I'm going to speak to them. Um, so I, I don't know if uh, that was ultimately a disappointment for them, but I, I, I think they do see me as uh, not like them. I... With my... I have taught maybe three or four black students in my day, or I mean, in language teaching and other stuff. And uh, but now, in my current job, where I'm not a language teacher temporarily, at least, depending on what happens in the future, maybe I should edit that out. Um, but <laughs> I, uh, the people I teach now are government workers, right. and. Some of them are actually from other countries, but um, it's not a language thing. And I thought also, all right, 
part of what I wanted to do by changing jobs was I don't teach, I've not taught very many black students. Um, and as I'm not like a public school teacher, I, and I teach adults, I was probably not going to have much of an opportunity to do so. And I was interested in, in just having that experience, like what I think you were thinking. Um, like these students will be similar to me in some ways and maybe we can connect, you know? Um, but there's other dimensions of identity and I ended, I have ended up feeling disappointing, disapp disappointed in how distant I feel from a lot of these, technically we call them participants, but, uh, from the people in our classes because I, you know, there's class, you know, there's just like experience. There's just a whole bunch of things where I come off in the way that I come off and I can try to come off differently. But the fact of the matter is I'm a big nerd and I can't really pretend to be something else. And there is still a sort of, like I said, at another point, idea, especially for someone around my age, that I'm just this you know, square poindexter person, and to them, like, that's not the positive image of a black teacher that they might have expected, for me, I guess I'm a trainer, but, um, and so it's also, it's ultimately been pretty disappointing for me, not in a way to criticize my, my job or in any way, just in the, the sense that, like, the students I've had the most trouble with since I've had this job and been the black students. Not like we've been fighting, but just like, you know, the people who I've had the most trouble connecting with. And it's disappointed me, you know? Yeah, I mean, like, look, the thing is, it's unlike a lot of things where they could just leave. They, they, it's part of their job. They have to go to class, right? It's training. So, like, they can't, they're not going to not show up. But if there is a group of students who, if I tell them, do this thing, and they're just like, Eh, like they'll do it, but they don't really care because we can't really do anything to them. Generally, they, I have had the most resistance from the black students. On the other hand, maybe it's not the case and I'm paying more attention. Like maybe I'm noticing, like maybe there's people who aren't paying attention and I'm not noticing they're not paying attention because I want the black students to pay attention, whatever. But <laughs> I don't know how to, I don't know how to prove that, so. I was just thinking about what I said earlier, like, you know, maybe my perception is I'm not connecting with my Chinese students in the way that I thought I would, but maybe, I don't know, uh, I'm assuming, I mean, just from my general feeling about the classroom and our interactions, that they don't uh, feel like, uh, I mean, I think they're a little bit nervous to come forward, some of them are at least, and they don't feel comfortable, or I don't know if they're shy, um, or I'm not doing enough as a teacher to make myself more uh, available, but I don't know what goes on in their heads, right? And I think I can say the same for you. You don't know what, you know, what is the experience of your students as you, as you work with them. I think this goes to a lot of stuff about racialization and categorization, because um, I think that expectations go into a lot of these things, and it's hard to not expect, like, you can't just, like, I will not expect something, like, then it's in your head already, you know? I think that, for example, 
I've had the most, like, in my opinion, and shown from, you know, whatever empirical results, but uh, in my opinion, I've had the best connections with Asian nationals since I've been back home as students, right? I've come back here, and I've taught people from, I like to say, every country, every continent except Oceania, because the people in Oceania mostly speak English. But, um, like, uh, you know, I've taught students from Africa and Europe and South America and Asia. Uh, but the ones who I've connected with the most have been people from Korea and people from Japan and people from China. And they, I wonder if they were expecting not to connect with me. And then because I knew some things about East Asia, they had, were presently surprised and we were able to connect. That's, and that's on their ex expectation side. Like I surpassed their expectations of connection or something. Whereas maybe some of the students I'm having now, they're expecting me to be a certain way and I'm not getting it. And then they're pulling back a little bit. I'm, I'm talking about their side. I don't know what level of expectation I'm having because maybe it's the same thing. Um, but in that sense, since I have more than a decade of experience working with East Asian students, I certainly expect to, ten to I tend to expect to connect with them and I, I tend to meet that expectation. So I don't know that it, I think the expectation on the student side might be part of it. I'm not blaming the students, um, but just in the sense that the students are, they see a person, especially because of the numbers, right? There's more students than teachers. They, they see a person and they don't know what to expect. They're not people who've spent time studying pedagogy and things like that. They just know their own experience. So they're going in with their expectations and it's not their job to be reflective about, I wonder what race the person will be and what I expect their connection to be like. Um, like that's our job. <laughs> so like they're going in thinking this is what this person is. Maybe I can connect with them. Maybe I can't in order to learn the material. And then the people who are, I'm surpassing their expectation, things are going better, and people who I'm not. So maybe, I don't know, maybe for you, it's not just what you're expecting of them, but they see you, and at first, before anything happens, they have an impression, and then 10 minutes later, they're like, I give up. But, <laughs> yeah. Right. played a role in that. Um, I remember teaching uh, a language test prep course uh, to a number of different uh, students from different countries, and um, I had one class that was particularly hard because, um, not to mince words, but um, I had a couple of students from Europe um, who were in a class with other students um, from South America, from Asia, etc. But it was, it was this one student who gave me the hardest time. And I think I can't help but wonder, you know, I mean, and as I think any POC teacher might wonder that when they walk into a classroom and they have students from Europe, um, how they might meet the expectations of certain students. And I, um, that student gave me a hard time, did from beginning to end. Um, he was very resistant to a lot of the things I wanted them to do in class, the group activities. He didn't want to work with certain students. Um, I've, you know, I've had those experiences as well. But yeah, I can't help but wonder if it's because he believes, he does not believe that I'm qualified to teach him test prep. 
Um, but given that I was teaching the test prep course in a well-established university where, you know, the assumption is that all teachers are vetted for and highly qualified, I think there wouldn't have been as much pushback, uh, say, compared to me teaching in, like, a language school, you know what I mean, where, um, where students have a lot more say in terms of their education and how it's going to be provided to them for better or for worse. So that's a good segue to the next thing I was going to say, because, you know, people often say, all right, so it's difficult for teachers of color or racialized teachers, depending on how you want to classify it, to get the positions that we want in this sphere. Um, we can get a job, like we talked about, but we can't always get the job, you know? Um, and some would say, which is a pretty bad excuse, they'll just say, well, this, the students or their parents, depending on how old they are, don't want that. So the economic incentives justify our hiring practices, which are not explicitly racial. But they'll just, oh, we we'll just hire the best person for the job. But we'll hire the people that are the most popular, for, you know, in this little circle where they don't talk about race, but race is in the background the whole time. Um, and, you know, it's really hard to win an argument when they're just like, look at the money, you know? And then you can even see the there's studies on this that the students, if asked, will say that they rate the competence of white presenting teachers higher than non-white presenting teachers. And it's really hard to break this loop, you know? Um, especially from our perspective. Like, we can sit here and be like, this is a problem, but they're over there making their hiring decisions without it. Um, so, so, I mean, education, especially in the private school, uh, private language school, it's a business, it's a business model, and in the end, I mean, the, you, and I know that sounds incredibly cynical, um, but yeah, numbers do matter, numbers of students and student retainment and student attainment matter, recruitment matters, and um, student feedback then therefore matters if they're happy with the classes they're getting, if they're happy with the instructions, uh, instructors. And I had a taste of that myself, teaching at a language school for uh, almost a year. Um, I felt like it was, you know, at times it felt like a popularity contest. And the teachers who didn't make that popularity contest uh, didn't fare so well. But that's an unfortunate reality of... Uh, Teachers, certain teachers more than others. The some I think the worst professional experience I had was at a private language school here in New York, and um, that school was like they would continue to enroll people way after the semester had started. It wasn't rolling admissions, which is one thing, but, like, the semester had start and end dates, but they just kept rolling people, kept rolling people. So they just broke their own rules um, because money. And the, it was also a place that was just, just handing out, you know, federal loans uh, that they knew the students were never going to be able to pay back. So they're just making money off the government, basically. Um, and they would shove as many people into the classroom as they possibly could 
um, because once this money is paid for, it doesn't really matter what the experience is. And any complaint, you know, would get someone fired or replaced. And it was clear to everyone who worked there that you can be replaced at any time. Um, so that does not lead to good teaching, um, <laughs> which does not lead to good results for the students. And the teachers are stressed. And then the students are like, oh, this teacher, what's going on here? Uh, and the cycle. And then, you know, what happens is you, you end up with teachers who work there um, either they are just really stressed or they have some other sort of income or they're married to somebody with a bunch of income. Um, and so you end up with people who are either without any money or the money just doesn't matter. And that's how you, I think, end up with a homogenous group of people because, you know, it's, it's similar to other quote-unquote socially good fields where they just like, well, who can afford not to be able to afford anything, <laughs> you know? And I think to a lot of people in the field is a feature, not a bug. I think that pushing us out is, is, is not like a problem. I don't think they're thinking about it too consciously because if they thought about it consciously, they would not do it. But uh, just because not, it's not intentional doesn't mean that it's not impactful. Um, so I really think that, yes, it's a business model. It's, it's pure, you know, on the one hand, it is rational in the sense that if you don't have any money, the doors are going to close, right? So we can make all of our moral arguments all we want, but if the doors close, we didn't win, <laughs> you know, cause then, right. Cause then nobody has a job. It's like, yeah, we won the moral argument. But no, the school is closed. Some schools need to be closed. But uh, so how do we make it so that they are soothed economically, but also being fairer and more equitable? I don't know the answer to this question. Um, I mean, I don't either. I mean, I could make... I, I... I can say that the schools that I appreciated working for, in my experience, have been the schools that, in the end, they they backed their teachers. I mean, they listened to, there were cases that came up with students, and that would be brought forward, but, and so every case would be, you know, assessed, but I, you know, if I feel like I'm being supported, and that the administration is more or less just, I, I think then I'd be ready and willing to deal with any problems that arise, uh, particularly when it comes to students not liking who I am or not liking me being their teacher, you know, things like that. Um, if I feel that I have an administration that will, um, you know, be able to understand if certain cases are uh, basically boiled down to students being discriminatory um, against uh, a racialized teacher that um, the school, the administration would recognize what's happening there um, and put their foot down and say, this person is going to be your teacher. And I'm sorry, if you if you don't like it, you know, can go somewhere else, but she's a, she or he is a qualified teacher. That's all there is to it. I mean, I've had workplaces that 
um, have done that, and I've also been in workplaces that have not done that in a more kind of covert kind of way. I, in one of the earlier episodes this season, I was talking to a woman from Iran, but she teaches in Japan. Right. Uh, yeah. And um, she mentioned how, because I, I bring the same argument up a lot because I think it's important we all talk about it. Uh, and, you know, she was saying that schools or countries, but whatever, that are making a point of hiring native speakers, which, of course, reifies racism in its own way. Um, but um, anything that ends up having discriminatory results and is a, in a, a part of a institution's policy, you know, some might say, well, it's just the money, right? What are we going to do about it? And, you know, that's how we end up in this position. But her point was... If you end up working there and those are their policies, they're not going to be equitable and fair once you get in the door. So everyone thinks, well, I'll just get in the door and then they'll, you know, I'll show them that we are worthwhile and I'll bring people behind me and I'll fix everything. And I get it because, you know, you got to eat. But like. <laughs> you, people, places are not going to have like discriminatory policies and also be really nice at the same time. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't work that way. So I think what you're saying is true. The places that um, really support people, both just in their daily daily interactions, are also going to support people in who they're actually hiring and promoting and so forth. Like you can't really have one without the other. You could try, you'll probably fail. You know, the world of English language teaching is so complex because we are not dealing with people in one given context because the students come in with their own context. Right. So I've also, like, I've had, there have been instances where um, Asian students have will come to Canada. Like, I'm thinking about certain Chinese or Korean or Japanese students will come to Canada take a course in our summer language program and this happened to me actually a couple of years ago like you know they got me as the instructor and there was some grumbling about the fact that some of them came all the way to Canada to get an instructor who they presume they can get in Asia and this is again I mean there's there are numerous stories like this and I don't want to uh, sound like I mean I, it's just, I've dealt with it, um, I've dealt with it numerous times, and all I can say is that I really do appreciate the schools that back teachers, because teachers, especially POC teachers, will encounter that at some point in their careers, if not multiple times, whether it's from Asian students, from their own, um, from uh, the same countries as their, you know, parents, or if it's, you know, students, um, from European countries who are not expecting a racialized teacher in their classroom when they come to the States. So, I mean, I think it, um, how the administration runs their schools and how they back up their teachers um, are key in our experiences. Yeah. Oh, I think that's a sort of a nice pin in it. Um, do you have anything else that you'd like to... Uh 
elaborate on with, with these topics? Because you kind of said all of the things. I mean, um, I will say that um, I do appreciate you doing this podcast. I mean, um, I mean, you know this. I had a little bit of hesitation about doing it, but I, since I've spoken to you about it, I, I've kind of realized that it really does matter to get people's experiences out there. Like, I, I realized that I'd like and I would like to hear more about other people's experiences in this field um, similar to mine. And so that I, I appreciate what um, the women, in EL, women of color in ELT are doing, you know, trying to get women of color in ELT voices out there. Um, I appreciate these efforts, and um, I might have undermined that in the past. So, yeah, I appreciate what you're doing here. I feel like a few of my episodes end with people saying they appreciate what I'm doing, and I always feel weird about it because it sounds like I'm just saying, like, all right, I'm great. Bye, everybody. <laughs> but but because it's always, like, the last part of the podcast. I'm just, like, but because, I mean, I don't know what else it, when else it would be. But, like, you know, I, I don't know where else to end after that because, yeah. like, it, but. I but there might be um, other podcasts that cover exactly this topic. Um, there might be, but I haven't come across. Too many. There's, a co- There's lots of podcasts in ELP now, but for this, I'm not sure. Well, what I tried to do, the whole point of this is, I this, look, yeah, like you said, there's lots of ELT podcasts, um, and there's even some like a series of podcasts on linguistic discrimination to some extent. You know, um, and what I try to do and am trying to develop because it changes, you know, it's episode 11 or 12, depending on when I post this. Uh, and what I'm trying to do is to make the experience both broad and specific, you know, so that it, it covers a lot of different perspectives. I have made a point of wanting to not like Captain Planet. But I'm trying to hit a lot of different racial perspectives um, and a lot of different um, linguistic perspectives. If I can look, I speak English, so it's going to be in English. But like um, people from different, you know, from different backgrounds, um, people from different nationalities, if I can, and you know, different genders, if I can. I mean, there's so many, but <laughs> like you know, so it's not. I mean, most podcast hosts are, are men. And so I don't want to just be talking to men on this, which I've been trying not to do. Uh, not just, I mean, including some, but not only. And I've been trying to just sort of make it so that when people listen to this, they hear things that they might not have otherwise heard. So that's the whole goal. And I think that no matter how many people end up listening, it's been valuable, at least for me and for the people who've been on it. So in that sense, I think... Mm-hmm.